Gender and Political Ambition, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Women are underrepresented in American political institutions, despite the positive track record of women in office and the willingness of voters to support women candidates. Why do women run for office at lower rates? It turns out that gender differences in political ambition originate in childhood and are difficult to counteract. Representation trends are slowly improving, but it will take a lot more work to reach parity. This week, I talk with Miria Holman of Tulane University about her American Political Science Review article with Angela Boss, Jill Greenlee, Zoe Oxley, and Celeste Lay. This one's for the boys, How Gendered Political Socialization Limits Girls' Political Ambition and Interest. She finds that girls tend to think of politicians as men and politics as a man's world and those perceptions build over time to reduce intended political involvement. Holman is also a leader in the field of gender and politics and the efforts to achieve gender parity in research and practice. In this conversational edition, we discuss Holman's broader work and the advance of gender and politics research and its impact on real-world politics. Here's our conversation. All right, so why don't you start by orienting us around the kind of the state of play for women's political representation in the United States? Uh, how well are uh, women represented uh, at each level of government uh, and among uh, candidates, and how much has changed? Well, to start the broad takeaway uh, today and throughout the last several hundred years is <laughs> that women are underrepresented in political office in the United States. Uh, and that is true at the congressional, state, and local levels. Depending on what office we're talking about, women are generally between a quarter and a third of, of office holders. Uh, that's also generally true for candidates. Uh, women are around a third of candidates uh, for political office. Uh, we don't see uh there being enormous differences across levels of office. For a long time, scholars thought that uh, women would be better represented at the local level because there are fewer barriers to entry. It's easier to say, have a family and be on a city council at the same time rather than be in Congress and, and have a family. Uh, but we actually, there's not a lot of evidence that suggests that women are, are much better represented at the local level than they are at the state or, or, or national level. So we keep hearing that uh, things are changing, and this is the year, um, 2018 and 2020, saw some increases, but but how much has changed? Uh, so we're on a very, very gradual upward trajectory, <laughs> uh, with the emphasis there on, on, on very, uh, that there are more women in office today than there were 10 years ago or 20 years ago, but not enormous gains. Uh, and... Part of why we see uh, sort of a, a slow movement is that uh, over time, we've increasingly see women run almost exclusively in the Democratic Party uh, and be very successful in being elected in the Democratic Party, particularly at the state and national level. And the Republican Party has really lagged behind in uh, putting women on, on the ballot. And so if we're trying to get to a place where we're gonna have political parity and representation. Women are just slightly over half of the population. If we were interested in political parity, one of the things that we would need is for the Republican party to have a, have a lot more women running, running on their ticket. 
So tell us about this idea of uh, gendered political socialization. Uh, how and why do girls and young women uh, come to see politics as a man's world? Uh, and how does that impact their political ambition? We're really interested, um, the research team that, that I'm involved in uh, is really interested in understanding how kids see the political world. Uh, and one of the major driving motivations behind this project was trying to understand at what point girls start uh, opting out of having political interest. We know that this pattern exists at the, at the adult level. There's There was at some point some evidence to suggest okay, in high school, maybe girls are already opting out. And so we thought, well, uh, if we draw on theories of broader socialization, that would suggest that this is also happening at uh, much younger levels. And so we develop a theory of gendered political socialization that argues that there are two patterns that are occurring at the same time. One is that kids are learning broadly about gender roles in society. Uh, and and this we know that this starts early in life. We're, we're definitely not the first scholars to talk about that. Part of what kids learn as they learn about gender roles are the expectations for how adults behave in ways that are consistent or inconsistent with their gender. And one of the principal ways that people behave in a way that's consistent with their gender is in career choices. And so young children in elementary school are starting to think about what they want to do in their life. They're learning about the jobs that they might want to have when, when they grow up. There are career fairs. They're, they observe adults in their lives uh, with jobs. And, and one of the things we know that children observe is that there are some jobs that women are much more likely to have, and there are some jobs that men are much more likely to have. So children may observe, for example, that almost all of their elementary school teachers are, are women, uh, or they may observe that every police officer that they interact with is a man. And these are broad patterns in society, and these are not determinative, but children do observe them and think about them as they are themselves weighing what kinds of jobs they might want to have as they grow up. So this gender role socialization is occurring. At the same time, kids are also engaged in political socialization. They're learning about the political system. They're learning about who's been president, who the important people in our political history are. They're learning about who's in Congress. They might do an assignment of what of the biography of a congressional leader, for example. And as they're doing this, they are observing patterns of who's in political office. Uh, and if we observe the patterns of who's in political office and who has been in political office, that is a story almost exclusively of men occupying political positions. So girls and boys are learning about broadly what jobs you might want to have and, and how that's shaped by gender and then learning about politics and, and thinking about sort of politics as a job, as a career. Do you want a career in politics as you grow up? And we argue that girls learn through this process that really politics is a place where men belong and that's a job that men have. And they begin to opt out of interest in it fairly early, um, as early as, say, eight or nine years old. And then you track them over time. Um, and, and so how does that uh, development, uh, yeah, how do, how do people develop these attitudes uh, over time and, and what changes them? So one of the things that, that we look at is uh, we, we use a, a, a new instrument, uh, which is that we ask kids to draw pictures of political leaders. And uh, 
we borrow this from a, a, an instrument that's been used in, in STEM education for a long time, for almost 50 years, where they've asked kids to draw pictures of what a scientist looks like. Uh, and in STEM, they show early on, oh, boys and girls think that scientists are men, and they engaged in a lot of interventions to try to change what boys and girls think of when they think of science. And they've been largely successful, right? We, now, if you go to an elementary school classroom and ask children to draw a picture of a scientist, they draw equally men and women as scientists. Uh, so we're, we're only 50 years behind STEM education here. Uh, and so we ask the children to draw a picture of political leader. And one of the things that we find is that uh, as girls age, they're decreasingly likely to draw pictures of women as political leaders and increasingly likely to draw pictures of men as political leaders. So among the young girls in our study, the six and seven year olds, only about half of them draw pictures of men as political leaders in this task, whereas nine out of 10 boys early on are drawing pictures of political leaders as men. But by the time these girls are 11 and 12 years old in our sample, they're equally likely as boys. Nine out of 10 of them are drawing pictures of men as political leaders. So they're internalizing these messages of sort of who belongs in politics and, and the gendered nature of, of politics as they, as they imagine what a political leader looks like and what political leaders do. We also show that across this time period, girls' interest in politics declines broadly, and in particular, their interest in holding political office at, when they're older. So when you first started talking, it sounded like a sort of an inherent problem of any underrepresented group um, that they're responding to the existing distribution uh, of uh, women and men in, in public office. Um, but then you mentioned the STEM example as an example of a successful intervention. So, so how much is this uh, just sort of an inevitable uh, task to get over um, uh, versus uh, kind of a, the specific fault or success of socializing institutions? That is a fantastic question. <laughs> that, that's the money question, right? Is, is, what can, is there anything that we can do about this? Or do we just have to wait until, I think the calculations are uh, 2188 is where we'd be, the, the year that it would will be when we reach uh, gender parity in political office if we continue at, at our current rate of increasing women. Uh, and one of the things that, uh, that we're really interested in is the idea that uh, we have a very particular way of, of socializing children in, into politics, um, particularly through social science uh, curriculum and, and education. And that is a very historical approach where we identify key events in history and the actors at those key events in history. And we talk about important people. And uh, over time, um, we've gotten much better at thinking about racial diversity in, in who we talk about. Almost all the children in our sample, for example, could identify who Martin Luther King was and what he did. They, they know a lot about uh, the civil rights movement because that's been fully incorporated into social science education, although the current uh, emphasis on removing any mention of race for, from, from children's education may <laughs> reverse some of those trends. Uh, but, but what is missing often from those discussions is any discussion of, of women as leaders because we don't have 
any history of a woman as a president that we could talk about. Um, and we don't have these key points where we can say, if you're using a really traditional historical approach for teaching social science education, that, oh, look at these women and all of the ways that they were, were political leaders. Uh, so one of the possibilities is thinking about how we might reform social science education to emphasize different things uh, rather than these sort of major leader-focused uh, historical events, thinking about social movements, for example, as a frame for thinking about moments in history. The other possibility is thinking about being very uh, purposeful about the inclusion of, of role models in the classroom. And Christina Woolbrick and David Campbell have some really interesting research that would suggest that, that role models are very impactful in, in shaping uh, certainly what uh, middle school and high school girls think about politics and, and the possibility of their future political involvement. We know that novel role models are also really important. The first time a woman does something that becomes really important uh, for girls thinking about politics. So I am very interested to, to know the effect of Kamala Harris, for example, on, on girls' political interest and ambition. Um, and then the third thing that we might think about are sort of softer interventions. Uh, the research team uh, actually produced a kids activity book that's associated with this project um, that uh, kids can use and, and we're developing a, a social science curriculum around it that, that uh, teachers can download for free and use in their classrooms. Uh, so thinking about ways that we might offer a lot of opportunities for teachers to include a, a broader set of role models uh, to, as to who they introduce children to in, in the classroom. That doesn't necessarily get us away from the fact that kids can look at who's in politics and know that women are really underrepresented in politics. And kids largely know we've never had a woman as, a, as president. <laughs> They're aware of these facts. Um, and so there is this challenge of like, we're up against the reality that our political system is dominated by men and uh, that kids are being rational when, when they recognize that. So we uh, focus on uh, differences in political ambition um, in part because uh, it's supposed to be an explanation uh, for low levels of women's representation uh, in in politics um, and the kind of finding in the literature that that fewer uh, women were were taking the plunge in. Um, but there are other explanations like discrimination by voters or party leaders or differences in fundraising or family commitments or me how women are treated by the media. So where does uh, ambition fit in that? Uh, uh, that list of explanations. Well, one of the principal challenges, I think, when we talk about ambition broadly in political science is that we often talk about running for office as something that people broadly should want to do. <laughs> that is not necessarily true. There are a lot of people that are very rational in their disinterest in, in running for office, uh, particularly as it becomes more and more expensive and more and more time intensive to, to win political office. Even at the local level, it's become more and more expensive to, to hold office. This is not an activity that everybody wants to do, and that's okay, but that sort of runs up against this problem that if we're interested in having more women in political office, we need more women to run for political office. And so 
uh, one of the things that I, I think a lot about that I, I really appreciate in, in recent scholarship is this recognition that one of the reasons that we see women having lower political ambition is because they're completely rational actors that look at the political system and say, I think that this system is biased against me. Why would I want to engage with it? Uh, and so it's not just a sort of a simple solution from my perspective of we just need to get more women to run for office, but also that we need to think about the alternative ways that the system is biased against women that then contribute to women being disinterested in running for political office. Uh, so Heather Anderson has this great recent article uh, where she demonstrates that essentially where women run, they win, but that's because they run where they can win. And women are really rational about where they decide to enter into political contests. And so in this circumstance, there are places where the voting public might be more willing to support a, a woman as a candidate. And those are the places where women have already run in the past. Uh, but it's not necessarily this thing of we should just get women to run for every office and expect that then that's going to be the solution to, to our problems. Um, I also think that uh, the, the literature that, that demonstrates um, that voter biases play a role, not just generally, but in particular circumstances, that voter biases in many ways need to be activated by a, a particular electoral context or a campaign environment, um, has really taught us a lot about uh, the barriers that women face in that they don't necessarily have control over the entire electoral environment. They can't necessarily know what their, their you know, opposition is going to focus on. They don't know what kinds of events are going to come up, what kinds of issues are going to be really important in the election. And so even if women think that they're entering into a contest where they have a good shot of winning, there are still so many undetermines in the campaign process that uh, women are often hesitant to, to put themselves in, into that environment. So you mentioned uh, Kamala Harris as a potential positive uh, example for stimulating uh, women's political candidacies, but we've also had a kind of a backlash example uh, with uh, Hillary Clinton losing uh, and the Donald Trump presidency stimulating a lot of women's political activity. Um, and even on the Republican side, the the increase seems to be stimulated by opposition to women candidates in the Democratic Party. So uh, kind of catch us up uh, there on what we know about how much has, has changed under, under the Trump administration uh, and now. So one of the things I think is uh, an interesting piece of being a political scientist that studied Hillary Clinton for a long time is uh, the sort of broad reaction to the 2016 election. Uh, you know, I started studying Hillary Clinton as, as a candidate in, in 2006 uh, and thinking about how voters would react to her at that point, thinking about her as a primary candidate in, in 2008, thinking about her as a secretary of state. And uh, the research that I did largely with Jennifer Marola and Liz Zeckmeister we often kind of felt like we were just sort of shouting into the void that we're like, there's, there are gender biases in the system. People don't like Hillary Clinton because of her gender, in addition to other reasons, but also really because of her gender. There are ways that people are applying gender stereotypes. And in general, 
there wasn't much traction in political science or really in the mainstream media of that argument until 2016. And then the 2016 election, um, Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton really made gender an explicit component of, of their political campaigns in a way that we had not seen before. We certainly did not see this in, you know, the 2008 Democratic primary, Barack Obama was not making gender an explicit part of how he was interacting with Hillary Clinton on the, on the campaign trail. But we get to 2016, Donald Trump's saying that Hillary Clinton is only running and winning because she's a woman, she's playing the woman card. Clinton is filming these ads about being the first woman. She's talking about how women, girls shouldn't have Donald Trump as a role model. Donald Trump's uh, Access Hollywood tape bring his uh, gender attitudes to the forefront. Um, and so we have all of these really explicit gendered components to the campaign that then I think generally to political scientists accepting the idea that gender might play a role in, in politics, particularly at the presidential level in the United States, and a bunch of women in the general population saying like, I, okay, something has to change with the system, right? So we see this huge increase in Democratic women, particularly Democratic women of color running in 2018 in direct response to uh, the 2016 election and to Donald Trump's election. And then, as you said, we have this additional sort of counter response among the Republican Party of Republican women running after they saw how many women ran in 2018, although the, the surge in, in Republican women is, was much smaller overall than the surge in, in Democratic women. And so we have uh, both sort of this gender has been made explicit. We can now talk about the role that gender is playing in politics and uh, this this ground surge of candidates uh, in, in response to the explicit nature of gender and gender discrimination in the 2016 election. And you also do uh, comparative uh, research. Uh, so how much uh, do these same considerations apply almost everywhere in the democratic world? And, and how much do we have some particularities that are very different? Uh, that's a great question. I uh, right now I have just been updating a, a, a lit review on a literature review on gender stereotypes and, and reading a bunch of new research on gender stereotypes in the comparative world. And uh, there's a lot of really exciting stuff out there. And a lot of uh, some of my research would suggest that there are uh, sort of core patterns in uh, in attitudes about women in political office that apply across uh, democratic countries. Uh, so in some of my research, I show that the patterns that uh, we've seen about attitudes about Hillary Clinton and a reluctance to support Hillary Clinton, particularly among people that were concerned about foreign policy and national defense, also applies in other settings. We have a paper that demonstrates that Theresa May was punished by voters after the Manchester bombing, and particularly voters that had negative attitudes about women in politics. There's also some really interesting comparative research that suggests there's really similar patterns, for example, in how the press covers men and women in politics with really sort of implicit gendered frames. It's not that the press is saying women don't belong in politics, but there's just enough of a difference in how women are covered uh, that then 
that both discourages women to run for office and shapes how voters think about women. Uh, and there's some really interesting research that would suggest that gender stereotypes are very volatile across country settings. Uh, so as individuals have more experience with women in political office, uh, that then changes their attitudes about the ability of women to lead. To some extent, it doesn't shape everybody's attitudes. So, uh, so some of this is these sort of these, we know that gender roles apply broadly across country contexts and the attitudes that are rooted in gender roles seem to also apply broadly across country contexts. But the political system itself really matters. In the United States, one of the reasons that we have very low levels of women in office in comparison to other countries is that many other countries have adopted gender quotas. Our political system is not really well suited for the adaptation of gender quotas. We have such a candidate-centered system. Parties have very little control about which candidates are on the ballot. Uh, we have increasingly tried to open up primaries broadly. That means that parties have less and less control over who gets on the ballot. That might have been at some point the point where we could have in instituted some version of a gender quota. And so in, in many ways, the United States is increasingly becoming like the hardest test case for getting women into political office in comparison to, to other dem democracies. So gender attitudes increasingly uh, divide uh, our two uh, political parties. Um, there might be some reason to believe people are making a decision between the two sides on that uh, basis. But on the other hand, there's also a lot of reason to believe that uh, people are following their uh, party leaders or their uh, party coalition members uh, toward those attitudes. So, so what's the state of, of knowing cause and effect there? Again, really difficult question. Uh, so one thing that we do know is that women increasingly identify as Democrats um, and men increasingly identify as Republicans. This is a slow, broad trend that has been occurring for 50 years now. Um, Heather Anderson has some really interesting work looking at Gallup polling over time that shows that uh, some of this is this sort of self-reinforcing cycle where more women run in the Democratic Party, and then that encourages women to think about the Democratic Party as friendlier to women. And then more women run in the Democratic Party, and that encourages women to think about the Democratic Party as friendlier to women, which then encourages this gender gap more broadly. Uh, there's also, though, these sort of messaging components to this. Uh, so Trump's election and the Republicans party, Republican Party's sort of unwillingness to reprimand him uh, for things that he said, um, for... Uh, the Access Hollywood tape for uh, actions that he took while he was in political office sent a message to the public that the Republican Party is not going to be a party that's particularly interested, for example, in caring about sexual harassment or sexual assault, uh, particularly in the workplace. Um, the nomination of Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court has you know, sort of cemented this as the Republican Party not really being a party that, that's going to take a stand on this. This is happening at the same time that the Democratic Party not doing the 
the most amazing job, but generally is engaging in a wide variety of, of internal policing. Uh, for example, kicking out members of the party uh, that are accused of sexual harassment or sexual assault, passing uh, new laws to protect uh, victims of, of sexual harassment and sexual assault. We've also seen gradual changes over time uh, in who is in each party in terms of their gendered attitudes. Uh, so people that score high on sexism measures increasingly identify now with the Republican Party and decreasingly identify uh, with the Democratic Party. This is also true if we look at broader um, measures of psychological constructs, uh, things like gendered system justification, right? Do you really buy into there being a gendered hierarchy in society where men are strong leaders and women need to be at home taking care of children and the family? The people that buy into that increasingly identify as Republicans and the people that don't increasingly identify as Democrats. So we're seeing these changes that were slow in the making for a long time, but then are being accelerated by the messages that the parties are, are sending out to their voters about acceptable and unacceptable behavior. So you also do research on the behavior of office holders. Um, so tell us a little bit about what we know about the uh, implications of having more uh, women in elected office in terms of their behavior and their representation. Well, there's a broad body of scholarship that suggests that there is a relationship between descriptive representation, the presence of women in political office, and substantive representation on women's issues. So having women in office leads to then the production of policy that is uh, favorable to women, helps women more. Uh, this is complicated broadly by this uh, association of party and gender. Uh, so it's not just that women overall uh, engage in this effort, uh, but we increasingly see that it's Democratic women uh, are the ones that are engaging in, in policy efforts to, to try to address things that are going to really impact uh, women's lives. We also see differences in behavior within political office. So I was just at the state politics and policy conference, and there's some really interesting research on that women just broadly are overperforming in political office. Uh, women that are elected to state legislatures, for example, introduce more pieces of legislation. Uh, they do more work on committees, even as they are assigned to committees that are considered sort of lower prestige. Uh, they, they make those committees work. They show up more to, to votes <laughs> in uh, houses. They engage more in constituent communication. Constituents demand more of them also, and constituents hold women in political office to higher standards uh, than they hold men in political office. Uh, so it's often really difficult to untangle sort of what, what is happening? What, what are the actual causal factors associated with women's increased uh, activity on women's issues? We do know generally that these are, these are broad trends they apply across political office. Uh, they apply in the United States and in other countries uh, that the more women there are in political office, the more likely there is going to be to, we're gonna see policy that, that helps women. 
So there uh, has been uh, quite a bit uh, learned in this research area. It's a pretty thriving uh, field. Um, yes. To what extent has that uh, depended on uh, the rise of women uh, within uh, political science? Uh, and kind of tell us about that, that trajectory within academia. So I got my PhD in, in 2010, uh, and there was a great body of scholarship uh, several key uh, academics that had been working in the area for a long time. We knew quite a bit about uh, descriptive trends. We knew quite a bit about broadly uh, the, con the connection between descriptive and substantive representation. Uh, we had a lot of information, uh, but what we've seen, I think, in the last 12 years is just an explosion of understanding the sort of micro foundations of these relationships, uh, increasing emphasis on thinking about causality and establishing causal relationships between women's representation and outcomes, for example, or between voters' attitudes and, and whether or not women are elected to political office, and uh, an, a really big emphasis on thinking about what we can borrow from other disciplines. So a strong emphasis on political psychology, um, Political sociology increasingly is drawn in thinking about things like occupational socialization and how that shapes uh, women's behavior in political office. Thinking about uh, adopting tools from economics for establishing causality, all of these things, uh, the gender and politics community has really drawn in in these tools for, from other disciplines, I think to, to the benefit of political science broadly, but particularly to the benefit of the gender and politics community. We've also seen a, a dramatic increase in, in the number of people studying gender and politics, uh, which is really exciting to me. I, I, I love seeing that so many people are, are now interested in studying gender and politics. It's also really exciting to me. I was just at this conference and it wasn't just women studying gender and politics, uh, which is not necessarily something that you see <laughs> that I've seen in the past. Often when you go to a gender and politics panel at a conference. It's all women presenting and all women in the audience. And uh, that's great for many reasons, but often sort of think produces uh, a sort of silo effect where women in politics are sort of only talking to each other. Um, so we've, we've increasingly seen um, a, a broader set of, of individuals interested in, in studying this, which is very exciting to me. So what is the, I guess, the current state of uh, gender and politics research within uh, political science? Um, is there a danger that it, that by creating a, a research agenda, we've sort of left it to the side of other substantive research agendas? Or uh, are we seeing more uh, respect and more uh, use of uh, gender and politics framing throughout the discipline? Well, I... I mean, I my take is that when I first started to publish uh, in this area and would send things to uh, mainstream political science journals, particularly top journals, I would regularly get the comment that this is good, but it belongs in a subfield journal. And that, that, that gender and politics is not political science. It's its own thing. And go be with the other <laughs> gender and politics people. I get way less of that now. Uh, and I, I think some of that is that uh, people that study gender and politics have talked a lot of, about receiving those kinds of comments and, and what that means for sort of how we think 
about political science more broadly. You know, for me saying like, oh, uh, okay, so everybody has a gender, first of all. And if you're not interested in, in women and how they engage in the political system, it means you're not interested in half the population and how it engages in the political system. That's ridiculous, right? You, that is mainstream political science. And so, you know, maybe enough of us saying that over and over again <laughs> have done something about that. Like may, maybe that has accomplished something. I think though also, um, as we've seen a broader set of scholars be interested in this, uh, people being trained across a wide set of programs and questions around gender and politics, you know, the, the movement is successful in itself. And then that, that breeds future success. Uh, I also think, you know, key scholars publishing in top journals and, and the sort of broader exposure to questions of gender and politics through the publication of gender and politics work in the APSR, AJPS, JOP, all uh, really help people think about this as a legitimate field. Um, again, with everything that we've talked about today, it's very difficult to say, like, what comes first, what caused what. Um, but but broadly, my take is the more people studying it, the better they're publishing their research, the more people accept it as, as a sort of a core component of, of political science. And what should uh, people know about kind of the state of the art in this uh, field uh, or the next generation? What kinds of questions are we uh, likely to be able to, to answer uh, soon? I'm just so excited about the future of the field. <laughs> so uh, one of the things that I think I'm hoping that we're going to see a lot more research on. And my take on the field is that we are going to see a lot more research on it. It is thinking not just about gender as this singular category, but but thinking much more deeply about uh, the other identities that engage with gender that shape how people experience the political world. So, of course, we have this really rich uh, history of thinking about intersectionality and the relationship between race and gender. I've seen some really interesting work recently in, in sort of digging into race and gender and thinking about the experiences, for example, of, of women of color in political office and, and what we can learn more broadly about political institutions from thinking about their experiences within those political institutions. I'm also really interested in a growing body of scholarship that thinks about uh, things like occupation or educational experience, uh, a broad evaluation of socialization and how that uh, how that interacts with gender to then shape how people think about politics or engage in the political world. And then there's this really amazing new body of scholarship that's thinking about the ways that uh, we've learned a lot about what American voters think about women in politics. And maybe it's time to think about whether or not American voters' experiences uh, apply more broadly to other political settings. Uh, so really interesting work in Latin America, in Africa, in uh, Southeast Asia. Uh, there's been some really great work that's been done recently in thinking about uh, local party lists in Europe and where women are placed on party lists and the sort of contagion effects of there being more women in local political parties. So there's just there's a, a really broad set of scholars engaging in the work um, like political science more broadly. The gender and politics world is in is in the midst of a data revolution. Right. We have so much more data 
on women in politics than we've ever had before. When I started working on my dissertation in 2007 on women in local politics, we did not know how many women were in local politics. And we really still didn't know until about 2019. Uh, and so all of a sudden we have so much more information just on descriptive representation, where women hold office. We have so much more information about what people do within political office. We have broad data sets now of what policies are looking like, looking at. Um, all of these things are, are, are really helping the gender and politics world sort of understand uh, how, how women engage with the political system and, and the consequences. And is anyone listening in the practitioner field? We have obviously a lot of foundations and advocacy groups and, and politicians themselves who should be interested uh, in learning the results of these uh, uh, studies. Uh, what, what's the current status of sort of the relationship with uh, the practitioner community? This is one place where I think that the gender and politics world has, has done a, a very good job of engaging with practitioners. Uh, a lot of gender and politics scholars engage in the work uh, because they have normative concerns about women's representation uh, or have normative, normative concerns about particular policies and often work with practitioners, nonprofits, organizations that are interested in those same kinds of outcomes. Uh, so uh, the Melinda Gates Foundation is pumping a lot of money <laughs> into these questions, which is amazing. Uh, we've seen uh, work by organizations like Emerge, uh, all these candidate training organizations. One of the things that I love about a lot of these organizations is that they are deeply interested in what academics have to say about the world and, and want to engage in evidence-based research that is really based on what the scholarship says. Uh, so that's been a, it's been a real delight um, to see those relationships flourish. Uh, and I would also say that generally people that study gender and politics want to do more of this. So any practitioners out there, you should reach out to your local gender and politics person and they will want to talk to you probably about these things. The other sort of piece of it that I think is really interesting and that potentially is, is an avenue for additional research is thinking about uh, the proliferation of these ideas on college campuses and within college campus groups. Uh, so lots of college campuses have groups explicitly focused on gender and politics, on getting women in office and getting women into campaign organizations. And uh, that's been, I think, really exciting to see because we're you know, training the next generation of academics or practitioners or advocates. And what's next for you? Uh, anything you want to tout about what uh, you're <laughs> working on or what the, the biggest, uh, uh, most exciting things in your future research agenda? Oh, that's a, a, a great question. Uh, Tiffany Barnes and I are, are working on a, a series of projects to try to think about uh, law schools as political socializing uh, settings and uh, trying to understand uh, where political ambition begins and does it begin and can it be nurtured in the law school environment? And is that explicitly gendered? Uh, so thinking about the ways that uh, we might intervene at the law school point to try to encourage uh, women that are getting JDs to think about running for political office. I'm really excited about that. It's just in its infancy stage, uh, but it's a, a really exciting project. 
And anything we didn't get to that you wanted to include or any closing message? Uh, just broadly, this is a great field. If you're interested in political science, it's a very welcoming field. People are really friendly. Go to panels, learn stuff, write papers. I'd love to read them if you want to send them to me. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available bi-weekly from the Niskanen Center and part of the Democracy Group Network. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, you should check out our previous related episodes. I think you'll like Why Republican Women Don't Run for Office and Why It Matters for the Gender Gap in Voting, A Century of Votes for Women, The Hyper-Involved versus the Disengaged, How Politics Changes Our Racial Views and Identities, and Child Care and Pre-K Expansion, Consensus or Polarization. Thanks to Miria Holman for joining me. Please check out This One's For The Boys and then listen in next time. Thank you.